Okay, thank you, uh, everybody, for coming. Welcome to the Cognitive Bias Podcast. I'm your host, David Dolan Thomas, and today we are chatting with uh, with Mike Montero. Uh, Mike, you do many things, so I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Tell the good people here who you are and what you are all about. Um, Jesus. First of all, wait a minute. We started something on the last podcast that I think we should keep going. Okay, I was going to ask you about this, but yes, I, I agree. Let's keep going. You. I am coming to you from unseated Ohlone land. And I am coming to you from unseated lap lands. What Mike and I are doing is, uh, if you haven't heard it before, is a land acknowledgement where we basically say, hey, uh, any property you own fell off the back of a truck. Um, so I am talking about who originally inhabited the place where I am right now, and that would be mostly the Lanap people. And for Mike, you said it's the who? What's the Ohlone. Ohlone, Okay. Uh, and it's just a good way to kind of just be as real as you possibly can about the reality you live in. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. I was I was wondering about just making that a, a standard feature now of the show. I think that's a good idea. I, I uh, think it's, you know, I first, the first place that I saw this was when I was doing, um, I was speaking at a conference in Australia, mm-hmm. I believe. And they did a land acknowledgement uh, for the original uh, Aborigine people of Australia. Um and I thought, oh, that's that's really like that's just a really nice, simple way to acknowledge that uh, you're on stolen land. Yeah, everyone um, on the call, I, I just threw into the chat uh, website you can go to and just sort of see where you are now and kind of who was there first. Um, and if you want to type your own land acknowledgments into the chat, please feel free. Um, uh, you know, if you live in America, you are not, not only are you on stolen land. It's uh, you're on stolen land in, in a country that was built by stolen people. Yeah, I keep thinking of like the metaphor for America of, you know, imagine a home invasion where after you invade the home, you also go to the next door and steal everybody and have them start working out of that home. Like that's America. <laughs> like like it's, 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 there's really no sugarcoating that. Um, so we're already starting in a great place. <laughs> You know, it's only going to go south from here. <laughs> uh, we're starting in a very real place. I feel like I want to requote a quote I did on the last um, episode. Uh, there's a line from Fargo, the season of Fargo, where one of the characters says, like, America loves crime stories because America is a crime story. And that still resonates with me. I feel like there's just so much truth in that. Uh, but it's not how we like to, you know, think about it. Uh, and I see people are already put, typing their uh, land acknowledgments into the chat. Thank you very much. So, Mike, who are you? Really, you know, I'm um, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a designer. Okay, I, I design things for a living. Um, but you know, I'm also um, I'm also an immigrant in the U.S. Uh, I'm also uh, I'm also the descendant of colonizers. Um, I'm a dad. I'm, I'm you know I've um, I'm a gentrifier. We're we're a lot of weird we're a lot of complicated things all at the same time, um, and I mean that's you know when I was a kid I was told that you know when um, when you're older you'll you'll be smarter, um, and uh, I think what's actually happened is uh, when if 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 you do it right when you when you're when you're older you realize how dumb you are, uh, you realize how much you actually don't know. And uh, if you've gotten any wisdom in those years, you both acknowledge that and uh, you'll, you'll learn how to um, get that other information that you didn't have. 
and talk to the other people who might have it and just learn as much as possible. Like I'm, I'm, um, I think we need to, as, we need to learn how to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And um, which, you know, as a white man is something that we we're fantastic at making other people feel. But holy shit, do we scream and cry and bitch and moan if anybody ever makes us feel uncomfortable. Uh, it's like we've decided, well, I mean, we, we, we've designed a society where we are the default. Yeah. Everything defaults to us. And uh, what's that quote that when, uh, when you've gotten so much, like any amount of equality feels like, what, what, who's smarter yeah. Who knows I, that quote? Yeah, if anyone knows that quote, feel free to chime in or type it into the chat. But it's a quote that essentially says that when you've got everything, equality looks like someone's taking something away from you. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's me. That's what I so do. That, I, I'm a writer. Yes, and we, we, we will get to that. But I, I want to I dig a little more into this. So first of all, I don't think I knew you were an immigrant. Can you tell oh, me yeah. about that? My, uh, my parents moved to the U.S. when I was three. They moved, mm. to, uh, they moved to Philadelphia. They moved to the Logan section of Philadelphia, which you're, you're probably familiar with. Is that where Logan's uh, Circle is? Or Logan no, Square? No, no. So it, uh, Logan is right above North Philadelphia. Oh, by Olney, like the Logan yeah. Olney station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to go to work there. I was at Olney was the fancy part of town. Really? Because it ain't that, that now. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, at that point, all like we like our dream was to move to Alney from Logan. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's where we settled. Where and were you coming from? Portugal. Mm, I had no idea. Yeah, the most it's the most problematic of countries. Mm. How so? Well, we basically we invented modern slavery. Mm. Here's the most uncomfortable thing I'll ever say to you, David. Uh, my ancestors probably, there's a good chance that my ancestors met your ancestors and robbed them. That is highly likely. Yeah, I don't really know. It. See, here we are. We're making our, our, ourselves uncomfortable. That's good, though. It's good. I let's mean, let's sit in it. this. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is something that, you know, I have to acknowledge yeah. That, you know, these are my ancestors. We did this. That's fucked up. Like if, like if any, like we owe African Americans reparations as well. Yeah. I think that um, I'm trying to remember the other thing you mentioned that I kind of wanted to dig into, but yeah, that's a, we have these very simplistic memory of slavery when we have it at all. And yeah, the Portuguese generally get left out of it, and they were like hugely into it. Oh, I mean, we're we're like that gift of Homer going into the bushes. Very yeah, quietly. exactly. Everybody notices, but I mean, we we um, we navigated the the routes. We captained the ships. We uh, we were playing with with richer countries' money, but we were essentially doing all the work. Well, that's, that's another important factor. People forget that slavery was an investment, right? It was a venture capital, right? It was the startup of its day. 
So yeah, so if Portugal was playing with other people's money, it's those people thought they were going to get a return on their investment. Exactly. That, we were we were we were uh, we were a startup. We were the original shitty startup. Yeah. And it's not a coincidence that, and this is kind of where I wanted to start to get to anyway, it's not a coincidence that we play out the same dynamics, the same version of capitalism that was played out then. Like it really hasn't changed that much. So if you look at the way startups work now, they're consistently making decisions that benefit the investor over human life, like pure and simple. And we learned that with slavery and we've just been doing I don't even want to say kinder versions of it ever since then, because it's not always even kinder. It's just, I don't know, more digital versions of it since then. Well, I mean, we, 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 we couch them in, you know, things that make us feel good, but it's, it's the same stuff. And um, I mean, we're, we're the, 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 the crowd that I'm most comfortable talking to in this whole equation has always been the workers, the designers. Mm. Um, because I don't know, maybe this is my ancestral thing. Cause like, I'm just used to that, that working, that, that group in the middle that's doing the work. Um, we can stop this. We can, we have a tremendous amount of power that we don't realize in, in this situation as designers. And by the way, when I say designers, I mean, you know, the, that big D that, includes you if you're wondering um they couldn't do this shit without us man well that's always the irony though right that the the work the benefit of the few always comes at the active participative cost of the many i mean i think about so i saw a movie and i'm gonna recommend everybody check this out it's called sarawinia sarawinia um, and it's a 70s, the early mid 80s uh, African film about an actual African queen who fought off French colonizers. And the movie actually, a lot of the focus of the movie is actually on those French colonizers. And it's basically eight white dudes and a whole bunch of Africans that they've basically conscripted into being their army. And one of the things you realize is that the French didn't, you know, conquer their slice of Africa by bringing a bunch of whole, whole bunch of French guys. They got Africa to conquer itself. And they would bribe these people with, if they conquered a town, it's like, okay, good job, soldier. You get two women. Uh, Hey, good job, soldier. You get two pigs or whatever. And, and Hey, really good job, soldier. You now get to run this town. They basically taught them to be oppressors. You get stock options. Stick around for a few years. Yes. Right. So. And and maybe I'll introduce you to, to, to my VC. Yeah. And, and so we've, we've modeled this way of, you're absolutely right. Like, at, and after a certain point, spoiler alert, the, you know, mostly because of the influence of this queen, the, those soldiers are like, yeah, screw this, we're out of here. <laughs> but that's how they win, right? By, by, by working together and rising up against, the, again, just eight white dudes. <laughs> um, but I, but so what does that like look like though? Because we've seen, right, this is not a new thought, like Marx had this thought, like lots of people have had this thought of, hey, if we can just get our shit together, we can overthrow the people who are fucking with us. But what does that look like today, right, do you think? Or what can it look like? Because it probably looks like a bunch of different things. Well, you know, as, as, as excited as the idea of overthrowing these fools gets me, of like, you know, rolling guillotines out into the street and start lopping off heads... I, I, I would be happy if we just got 
some, some form of equality in the workplace with these fools. Because right now they, they hold all of the power in this equation. And we refuse to, to use ours at all. And our power as workers comes from collective action. It always has. Anytime things have, have, have bettered for workers anywhere in the world, it's because workers have united and started working together. Because, I mean, they can fire any of you. They can, they can fire any of us and replace us in a couple of weeks. You, you can't fire an entire engineering team without fucking yourself. Just the, the amount of work that that would take and the, the amount of institutional knowledge that will go out the door at the same time is, is too much of a hit. And all we really have to do is unionize. All we have to do is decide that we are a collective unit and management has to deal with us as a collective unit. And it looks, it looks like there's somebody here from uh, the Tech Workers Coalition that's who exactly could, who I'm signaling. <laughs> who could who who I would love to hear about this because you know I'm just talking shit and they're actually <laughs> doing the work. So I would love to cede some time to somebody who's actually doing this work. Yeah, please go ahead. Uh, my name is Amy Santee. I live in Portland, Oregon. Um, and um, yeah, Tech Workers Coalition, uh, there's a huge slack of like a bajillion people, but there is a group on there. Um, you know, we share all kinds of information on this all the time, um, just for education purposes, trying to get it on social media, talking exactly about unionizing and um, workers across all industries at all levels and how it's all essentially the same thing. Um, right now, I'm part of an effort working on a tech worker bill of rights. Um, this is a small group working on this, but one idea is that we're going to bring it out to, you know, our community and get feedback on it as we go along. So I be happy to answer questions or connect anyone to this um, effort who is interested. Thank you. That's amazing. Um, how long have you been doing this, Amy? Uh, it's it's new. Um, this has always been an interest, but I stumbled upon um, Tech Workers Coalition, I don't know, a few months ago from someone on LinkedIn. was posting. A, I post about this stuff on LinkedIn because that's where it needs to be discussed and it gets traction sometimes, and sometimes the algorithm suppresses it. But uh, yeah, so this is this group is uh, a new thing for me personally. Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this work. Big round of applause for Amy for actually doing the work. Well, you all too. Talking about it is essential. So thank you. Talking, you know, talking is cheap, as they say. <laughs> but doing the work is hard. So kudos to you. So, so Mike, I do want to, I do want to get to your book because they, it, it touches on this and I was going to talk about ruined by design, but then you went and wrote another book. So Mike, what's your new book about? The, well, see the new book is, the new book is, is, is cheap. The new book <laughs> is just, it's, it's a cheap, naked grab for your wallet. It is all stuff that I've already published before. It's essays from like the last eight years, just put together in one book. If um, if you if you're all if you've already read all of this stuff, like one, thank you. Two, there's very little new in the book except um, ex except 
uh, I decided to put leave things put things in the book as written, and uh, then annotate in footnotes uh, where I had screwed up. Mm. Because I think it's important for people to see that, Be- like you know, some of these things are like you know six years old, and um, there isn't anybody who doesn't screw up in you know a six, you know. If I still believe the same thing now that I believed six years ago, like a hundred percent, there'd be something wrong. So every once in a while, I'm like, "Oh wow, I was really wrong with that." So I'll just put a little footnote that says, "Boy, I really cocked this one up." Um, so can you give me an example of one of those? Here's one that I'm currently struggling with, um, and it's it's the phrase "gatekeeper." So in my writing, um, I've always used gatekeeping as a positive term, and meaning um, that I am a gate, like me as a designer, am a gatekeeper against keeping bad design from going into the world. That's how I refer to it forever. Like like this bad design, no passeron. <laughs> shall not pass and it does not get by me uh in the in what i i was going to say in the last few years but it, what i've noticed in the last few years is how that phrase is being used more and more as a negative term like gatekeepers are people who uh are are keeping you know uh minorities and and uh marginalized groups from accessing things that uh, they should have access to. Um, and that and language changes, language changes and people use things differently now. So um, I'm trying to find a way to, to both honor how I used, what I mean, um, but also honor how the language is evolving and who is evolving it mm. rather than, you know, uh, Honestly, what I might have done just a few years ago is y'all are using this word wrong and you need to be yelled at. Um, so that's the sort of thing that would go into a footnote. Just like, hey, this word is evolving a lot. And here's what I meant when I said it. And here's what it means now. And um, hooray language evolution. Yeah, I see that the... Um the latest edition is like a 20th, 10th anniversary edition of, um, of, uh, the new Jim Crow. And I caught a bit of the preface of it. I think it was on the UX and content slack. And part of the changes are around anti-racist language, right? So certain ways you refer to people who've been incarcerated and, and a lot of that language, she says, she's like made these changes based on the way language has evolved, the way like, you know, at the time, this was how people in the industry were using these terms. And here's like how those are negatively impacted and so on. So it's a very similar thing. And one of the points she brings up, which I, I really, because I too have this kind of situation where it's like, oh, with me, it's more like, oh, can we find a, a more palatable way to say this or that or the other? Or I'm, I'm hyper aware of reactants and the fact that people don't like being told what to do. That's why PC was so toxic to folks. And like, it just made people, it fetishized you know, negative language. Um, but increasingly I'm getting to the point where I'm like, there is a reason we're using the term to fund the police. And while the thought experiment, if you will, that it is describing is very much around finding 
who should be doing certain roles in the community. <laughs> and in many cases, it is not the police. <laughs> but that language, right? I, I don't want to, I, I, I'm increasingly hesitant to go in and be like, can you find a more white friendly way to say that? <laughs> because it is in and of itself a litmus test for your comfort level with the police, right? If the police come to your aid, all of a sudden to fund the police is the scary term. If the, the police are like causing you active harm, to fund the police is like, why haven't we done this already, right? <laughs> and I like that it serves that function and forces you, again, going back to being uncomfortable, it forces you to sort of reckon with, why am I uncomfortable with that term? That says I, there's information in my discomfort with that term on its own. Well, when I first saw that uh, this phrase that I had been using forever, gatekeeping, was, had now flipped to a negative, I, like my, my first reaction was uh, to be pissed off. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned through uh, decades of therapy at this point is uh, that uh, maybe don't lead with your first reaction. <laughs> maybe, you know, walk your first reaction around the block for a while. <laughs> Find out why is this pissing me off? And and uh, investigate that. And uh, it, I mean... To be honest, it's it's like, hey, I've I've like like kind of made a thing out of this phrase, and now you people are making it a bad thing, and uh, that's you know subtracting from me. And and yeah, that was my initial reaction was yeah, that pissed me off. Now I'm going to have to rewrite a bunch of stuff and redo a bunch of slides, and oh, wow, that'll be the hardest work that anyone ever has to do on this planet. Yeah, and that's and that's that's um, Michelle Alexander's point in the. Uh, <clears throat> And the preface is that like your discomfort with changing language is not discomfort. <laughs> like, like it doesn't even rank <laughs> with the context for these, these changes in language. Like don't, don't even, don't even. Ijeoma <laughs> uh, Olua uh, in uh, So You Want to Talk About Race. Um, I read that, wouldn't that come out like three years ago, maybe? I, I don't know. Can you tell me more about that book? I'm actually not familiar with it. It's an amazing book. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, at one point in the book, uh, she, sa she, she says, if you are white in a racist society, you're a racist. If you're a male in a sexist society, you are sexist because you have benefited from all of those things. And... Um, when I first read that, my, my, first, my first thought was, well, this doesn't apply to me, obviously, because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm great. <laughs> um, and then the more, and I actually, so I found myself like go, reading like five pages past that and like going back and be like, wait a minute. And reading it again and like getting angrier every time I read it. Until finally it broke through. Like, yeah. Yeah, this is totally about me. And my intent, whatever my intent might be, even if I, you know, walk into this society with the best of intents, I'm still getting this shit. Even if I don't want it, I still get it. Like, you know, 
I, there's a story I used to tell um, about my first design job. My first design job, um, I had, it was at a copy shop, if anybody remembers what those were, like a desktop publishing department at a copy shop. I was basically laying out like letterheads and envelopes and, and uh, making like bad logos for companies, small little companies. This was before you could do that online. Um, and I, I knew absolutely, I, I knew nothing. I knew, I like I just graduated from art school. So I had like to get that job with zero skills. And um, this was actually, uh, I put this in Ruined by Design um, because now I look back at that and I was like, holy shit, they decided I could do the job the minute I walked through the door. They saw me, they saw a white dude. They saw, I was, I was prettier at the time because I was younger, David. So they saw a handsome white dude and uh, they defaulted to can do the job. And, you know, I probably said some charming things along the way that, that, that justified their bias from me walking in, uh, but had like a, a Latina woman or, or a, a, a black woman or uh, anyone else that wasn't a white man walked into this situation, they would have had that, that sprint that I ran would have been a hurdle, would have been, uh, uh, would have been 110 meter hurdles. Well, you they would have had, they would have had to prove to these people that yes, even though I don't look like what you picture a designer to look like I am but they would have had to, to, to run past a bunch of hurdles that I just got for free. Yeah, because you fit the pattern. Yeah, I fit the pattern. They were looking. So, I mean, like, like all of you right now, like, like think, of, think, of, think designer. And something just popped into your head. Um, and most likely than not, like if you're a white person, that's a, a white dude that just popped into your head. And if a white dude walks through that door and sits down to interview, it's like, that checks out. Yes, white guys with beards, absolutely. I grew this beard so that I could charge more. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, and, and while well, we did this experiment on our previous episode, but if I say the word American, what pops into your head, right? Um, and this is where this is where um, language becomes so powerful, right? Now, why I'm starting to be much as you are more flexible around it because if I say people who live in America, right, which is another experiment we did on the show previously, right, it's a different potentially image that pops into your head, and it might be more than one person now because I've allowed it to be people. Um, but that's that's hugely important. So, which which. How did you pick which essays you needed to talk about now? Like, did you just run the gamut or were there particular ones where like, okay, this needs to be revisited? I, um, I chickened out and I had an editor do it. Let's take five minutes in praise of editors here. Oh my God. Because honestly, like when I write, it's, it's like I go into like a writing frenzy and I throw like 400 pages of garbage 
at 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 the world at one of the world's most patient human beings, and uh, they return you like two hundred and thirty pages of something readable, mm-hmm. which is not what you handed them by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination. How did they do that? Um, so who's your, who's your editor? I mean, they skill. They do it with skill. They do it with a ton of skill, a ton of learning, and they have a ton of experience. Same way that we do our job. I'm, we just, I mean, people are probably like, how the hell do you do what you do? Um, <laughs> I think one, one of the things, so, so one of the things that, that gets us in trouble in Silicon Valley is that we think because, because a dude is, is good at uh, building a social network to rate women, uh, he should probably have his own cryptocurrency. So there, there is an attribution error or halo effect where if yeah. someone has one good quality, we will assume they also have all the other qualities. So if someone is handsome, they must also be trustworthy. They must also be loyal and so on and so on, right? And we do that par excellence with, with white dudes, young white dudes especially. So if they are young and, you know, handsome, they must also be smart. They must also be wealthy. They must, you know, and it's just... It's easier. It's easier that way. It's easier to think. It's much harder to deal with a complex human being. I would even go one step beyond what you're saying. I think uh, with with young white dudes, it's it's a subtractive process. They walk in and it's assumed they have all the qualities uh, until they prove otherwise. There is a there's a quote in the book from uh, one. Um, from an investor whose name I forget. He's one of the big ones. Uh, But uh, he said, you know, I see a guy that looks like Zuckerberg and I can't help it. I want to give him money. Paul Graham. Thank you. Thank you, Erica Hall. It is Paul Graham. He fits the pattern. Yeah. I mean, that's that's what it, and and when I I think about- One of those dudes that makes me money. And when I think about like what our future looks like, I get asked this all the time. It's like, how do you eliminate bias? I'm like, you don't. That's not that's not a thing. Like, like how do you eliminate breathing? Like, and I talk about like the short, like my whole book is the short-term solutions of okay, well, we're gonna build these guardrails because you're an alcoholic and I need to keep you out of a bar, right? But the long-term stuff. That's not just another book. That's another library because part of the long term is you need different patterns. Right. This was why I was. Yeah, go ahead. And and you need people and you need to be surrounded by people who are willing to smack you upside the head once in a while. Yeah. Um, Again, thank God for editors. But you like this is why this is why I make a very big deal out of, you know, Black Panther being like the third or fourth highest grossing movie of all time. That's important because it makes it part of the pattern. Right that wealth <laughs> is an association people are gonna have now. And it means lots of people are seeing that pattern of black agency and black beauty, right? It's important, you know, say what you will about his policies. Um, Cause there are a few things I disagreed about Obama with, but one of them I didn't disagree about was being black and president at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> I was all in favor of that because that establishes a key pattern. And I'm, yeah. still, I'm still convinced that I, I, I hypothesize that part of the reason the Black Lives Matter movement came up when it did is because there's because it wasn't like there weren't black boys being killed by cops and being killed by white people long before Black Lives Matter. 
But I think with a black president, it became more cognitive dissonance. It was weird, right? Prior to that, if you saw a black man on the news, he was either a cop or, or a criminal or a uh, or celebrity, right? But now if you saw a black guy on the news, he was the most powerful person on the planet. And when the most someone who looks like the most powerful person on the planet is getting shot by the cops, then it's like, wait a minute, <laughs> right? I think that's part of, there are many factors, but I think that's part of why you get a movement as organized, why you get the level of outrage necessary for more than just black people to start taking notice when black people get shot during, during so establishing new, new patterns, I am all for it. Yep. And um, that means we need to listen to new people. Yes. Yeah, you people get you not been listening to. Yeah, you get Black Panther when you throw Marvel money at Ryan Coogler. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and by all means, please keep throwing Marvel money at Ryan Coogler. Yes. <laughs> um Shit, I'm 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 fucking devastated. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're you're gonna have to be more specific, but yeah, go ahead. Can we curse on this show? Oh uh, fuck yeah. Okay, because I'm uh, losing Chadwick, man. Oh my God. I was talking to a black friend of mine today. And it's like, oh yeah. And then 2020 had to take him from us too. I mean, unnecessary, unnecessary cruelty. Anyway. Yeah. What are they going to do now? I mean, I can tell you what I hope they do. I mean, obviously this isn't like, this isn't even like within the top 25 most <laughs> important things that need to happen in the next week or year. <laughs> God damn it, when this is over, I want to see another, I want to see Black Panther 2, and I want a Chadwick in it. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what I hope they do. A lot of people have brought this up, is um, Shuri becomes Black Panther. Oh, dude. Which which actually happens in the comics. Like, that's that's a incredible fact, right? But that would be, because oh, yeah. what I love about Shuri is that, again, going back to patterns, if you're a smart Black girl in school, and someone looks at you and sees a smart black girl and that doesn't fit the pattern for what little black girls are, they are going to make fun of you because you don't fit the pattern. Like that alone gives them an excuse to make fun of you. Post Black Panther, you see a smart black girl and you go, oh, that's Shuri. Mm-hmm. I have a pattern. I have something to tie it to, to associate it with, something good to associate it with. And it doesn't always work, but oh my God, there's a thing there now. There's a name for it. And all the content strategists in the room know once you have a name for something, okay, now you can get shit done. Yeah. True. Um, so I want to get back to like the job definition of a designer and not in terms of, oh, you're a designer if you have, not in terms of like tasks you perform and like, Okay, project managers, yeah, you're a designer because you're contributing to the outcome of this project. Like, more in terms of like mission, right? Like, as a designer, as a maker of things, as someone who contributes to the outcome of a thing, like, what is your job definition in terms of what is what is your obligation? Like, this is something that you get very deeply. That's basically what Ruined by Design is about, well, is redefining that. But how would you, if you were to write the proper definition of designer in the dictionary, what would you include that's not there now? There's, um, it's a great question. Thank you. There's two pieces to that. Uh, and, and one is how do you define your job? 
uh, which you mentioned, and uh, a designer's job is to solve problems within a set of real constraints. Not imagined constraints, not fiscal constraints, not VC constraints, but real constraints. Uh, the second part of what's important is who does a designer do that for? Who does a designer work for? And I mean, the easiest answer for all of us is you work for the people on the other side of the glass. You work for the people who will never meet you. You work for the people who you might never meet. You work for the people who aren't in the room now when these decisions are getting made. You never, if, 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 it's a, if a name appears on your paycheck, that is not the person that you work for. You work, you work for, the, for them, the people on the other side of the glass. You need to be solving problems that benefit them. Our company's valuation is not a problem that design should be solving. Um, there was, I remember when I was, when I was um, back when I was a, a, a youngin and um, the uh, music industry was, was up in arms because we started, um, because we started home taping, home ta cassette taping was killing the music business. Do you remember this? I remember cassette taping. I do not remember it. I mean, I get how people would think that. I did, it didn't oh, even occur to me. Killing the music business. Wow. Because, uh, <laughs> because 95% of the profits that uh, should have been going to artists and were going to, to these companies uh, were now not going to these companies anymore. And that was, that was a problem. Um, so the, the, the RIAA, uh, which was the supervillain arm of the music industry, put out a, a they made a, a, a little logo of a, of a cassette um, and, and then uh, crossbones under the cassette. And it said, uh, home music is killing the, the, the music industry underneath. The old white guy with the beard who's over here to my right is, is acknowledging that he remembers this. There he is. Um, now, here's the thing. If you put a cassette next uh, on top of crossbows to, so that the cassette holes are the eyes, you have just made the most badass logo on the planet. <laughs> and there's no way that we're not going to steal that. So we immediately took that logo and changed the text to our, your business model is not our problem. And I mean, we were printing, we were making stickers, we were making t-shirts, like we put that, like we, we, we took their, their PR move and co-opted it and uh, had a much more fun time with it. And I mean, that's, that's something that designers need to, to, this mentality is something that designers need to get back. Your business model is not my problem, which is different, is different than understanding a business model. We definitely need to understand the business model that we're making money within. We absolutely 100% need to understand it. But in understanding it, we cannot become cops for it. We cannot become the police for that business model. It's part of our definition is to look at that business model, understand it, and then say, Oh, hell no. 
hell no, our labor is not getting used for this. Because right now, I mean, you know, in, in, in the capitalist society that we live in, I mean, it's, it's named after money. Capitalist society is named, it, it's telling you what it is right off the bat. That's what it says on the tin. It's what it says on the tin. The most important thing in our society is money. So you are either uh, making it or helping somebody else make it, or you don't have enough of it. But everything that we do is going to get measured by money. And as designers, are more often than not, we are helping somebody make money. And that's how, how our jobs get measured. Did I help Chad meet his money quota this month? Well, fuck Chad, because he's making his money quota by fucking over these other people here on the other side of the glass. And we can't measure our work by the same thing that evil people would measure our work by. We need to measure our work. We need, we need another way to measure our work. And that way needs to be something that we all agree on as designers. We need to, to figure out who we are, how we behave, and how we are going to check ourselves and measure ourselves. Because at least for the foreseeable future, we are gonna get placed into this system, this capitalist system, but it's not to be happy cogs in that system. It's to be a check on that system. Because that system does need us to work. And when we are in there, we need to make sure that that system isn't getting used to hurt people. Especially the people who can least afford to be hurt, which is generally the people who are getting hurt first. I mean, I don't know if, uh, if folks in the rest of the country are, are, well, no, you're not because it's a California proposition. But we're getting hammered on, on TV and in little pop-up ads and shit uh, about uh, Prop 22, um, which it's, it's the, uh, the, the gig worker proposition, um, which is wholly funded by uh, shitheads like Uber and Airbnb and um, other gig economy dum-dums um, looking for an exemption to uh, the, the proposition that got passed last election, I believe. Erica, check me on this, please. She's so much smarter than I am. That's what we're having her on next week. We just want to get, to get smarter and smarter as it goes. You, like everyone knows this. Um, so these, 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 these companies, um, they, they cannot make money without screwing the gig workers over. So their whole, their whole thing is if we have to pay these people benefits, we're no longer profitable. And which, which is holy shit, like, how the fuck is that something that a, that a human being says to another group of human beings? Um, you know, I've, I've, I, in, in my, in my yelling at Jack Dorsey over the years, um, there's always somebody, um, and it's always, it's always a, a white man who replies to me and says, uh, 
you know, a CEO's only job is to make money for stakeholders. And the reason that pisses me off is because it's true. Yeah. It's absolutely true. That is, that is their only, that's the only measure of success that that CEO needs to pay attention to, which means that this is broken. Yeah. Society is broken if that's how we're measuring success. Here's a fun fact. Fun fact. Lyft, Uber, DoorDash, Instacart, and Postmates have contributed over 180 million into campaigns supporting Prop 22, making it the most expensive ballot measure in California history. Wow. Thank you. They could have maybe used that money uh, to help their drivers. But they're willing to spend $180 million for the ability to keep fucking people. That's how important this is to them. We have, we have the largest income discrepancy of the modern world right now. Uh, Instacart ordered its workers, uh, and I'm, I'm getting this from Wikipedia, Instacart ordered its workers to place pro Prop 22 stickers in customers' shopping bags. And so this begs the question, wait, if they're not employees, how can you order them to do a thing if they're independent contractors? That is like, oh my God, that's like straight up like boss hog, like, you know, um, industrialist, like you work at the plant, so you have to like, vote a certain way it's oh my god okay so so this so this ceo thing actually we do have a question about it so um how do you think we can solve some of the ethics questions in tech by eliminating the horrible ceos we see that litter the tech landscape where do we start this sounds like a guillotine question mike but i'll let you take it in whatever direction you like can you can you repeat that sure sure Oh, yeah. How do you think we can solve some of the ethics questions in tech by eliminating the horrible CEOs we see that litter the tech landscape? Where do we start? Well, I mean, you eliminate them. You, <laughs> we, uh, f- first off, I, and, and I know this is going to sound like a cop-out, uh, but you stop asking people who look like me to solve these problems. <laughs> because, you know, even with the best of intentions, I'm going to try to solve this problem so that my own skin's not caught in the solution. Um, but I mean, we need to take a look at, at how we're, um, we need to take a look at other models. We need to listen to and see how other people have done it. Um, you know, the, the, the thing about uh, American exceptionalism is that we refuse to look, we refuse to look around the world and see how other people have dealt with the same issues that we now face uh, because they simply don't apply to a country as exceptional as us. How could they? I mean, the only country that has our gun violence problem cannot think of a way to solve gun gun violence. 
even as the majority of countries around the world have solved it. Um, the, I mean, the, the only country our size and of our wealth, the only country even in that neighborhood that doesn't contribute to the, to the, to the health, to, to the health of their population, um, could just turn around and look at so many examples, so many examples of other countries that are doing it. Um, but we don't. And, you know, bringing it back to designers for a second, when I first, when I first started talking to uh, designers about unionizing, and I'm sure that there were a ton of people doing this before I did, a ton of them Thank doing, you. doing it better. Um, uh, and, 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 uh, and bless them for it. Uh, but the thing I heard most, the thing that I heard most is that um, it is too hard to unionize this profession. Even in our profession, we've decided that we are way too exceptional to be beholden by anything that's worked for anybody else. I have, I have, a, I have a lot of thoughts there. What I keep coming back to is... There was a time when this was not unusual. The idea that you could take down a major corporation because monopolies are bad and fascism is bad. Like that was, that was a thing that Americans did. Um, and I think, so part of the problem is that, hey, we're this huge wealthy nation. How, how, we, how are we still having these kinds of problems? We're not. We're not. See, this this is a thing that this is a thing we need to stop saying. We are not a huge wealthy nation. In this nation, there are a very small percentage of wealthy people. A very small percentage of wealthy people. By and large, we are a nation of debtors without insurance. And that, that is precisely, I think, the disconnect, right? That, I mean, there, yeah, go ahead. I apologize. I, did, I apologize for cutting you off. No, no, no. I was just going to say, like, that's the disconnect. People, like, there's this whole, like, how, oh, you can get, put a person on the moon, but you can't feed the poor. And I'm like, the reason we can put a person on the moon is because we don't feed our poor. Yeah. Like, that's what people miss, yeah. is that the reason we have such inordinate wealth is because we we government in a way <laughs> that allows and that optimizes for the vast accumulation of wealth by a few people. And that's by um, design. This, yeah. that, this country was designed to behave exactly how it's behaving now. America is not broken. Yeah, it <laughs> does what it says way. on the tin. <laughs> yeah, it's working the way that we designed it to work. If we want it to work another way, we need to design it a different way. And the thing is, we know it can, right? So I talk about the example of like A&P and they were like going and doing the same shit that Walmart does today, but they got shut down. <laughs> they were like, no, there were laws that said you can't do that. And people went to jail. Banks failing. Too big to fail didn't used to be a thing. The last time the banks failed, people went to jail and they didn't get to keep their bank yeah. <laughs> and they broke up the bank. <laughs> like we know as America, even in super old, even more somehow racist America, <laughs> New Deal America, uh, even super racist New Deal America knew how to handle that shit. And ironically, 
it's, you know, at least in some part, the evolution of the union, which was frankly kind of racist then, um, and the suspicion around that, which led to this point of basically a version of liberal politics that said, you know what, as long as consumers are getting what they need cheaply, we don't have to worry about social justice and finance. We don't have to worry about regulating finance. Eh, they'll take care of themselves. Like, I don't even trust, I don't trust big business or small business, right? I don't trust these racist unions. And yeah. so we started divorcing in a way where you start to have the first person to start deregulating was Carter. What the fuck, right? Reagan hey, took it to a whole other level. But like, even, yeah. Who started the EPA, David? Nixon. Yes. Started the EPA and came this close to um, to passing the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah. Nixon is a complex motherfucker because it's the it's same weird. guy who started the drug war in the DEA and made it so that um, uh, health insurance companies could be for profit. Yeah. And a Quaker. Yes. <laughs> like that's, oh my God. But long story short, I feel like it is in fact possible to get, we, we know we can have a version of America that is less, that is that, that has a, a, a greater focus on the common good or at least a greater fear of fascism. Because I think that's where a lot of that deregulate, that regulation was coming from and that anti-monopolism was coming from. You know, let me, let me say this. There's a, there's a lot of talk about saving America. Fuck America. I would like us to save the people currently residing in America. Mm. I want I want us to care more about the human beings currently living on this soil, all of them, all of them, than we care about this abstract notion of us as whatever the hell broken thing we designed 300 years ago that was only ever meant to serve a small percentage of us. My job is not to fix what James Madison thought was a good idea 300 years ago. My job is to make sure that my community now and my neighbors and my kid and the people in my home and the people in, you know, people in, in homes around me is to make sure that, that they can prosper. Fuck saving their constitution. It was broken to begin with. It's, it's, it's caused us nothing but misery for 300 years. And in with the 50%, maybe 50% good ideas that were in there, there were 50% ideas that were absolutely toxic. And it, it may have been the first democratic constitution that, you know, the world ever produced, but who the hell here is still trying to keep their first iPhone alive? <laughs> Anyone? I mean, you upgrade those fuckers. You upgrade those fuckers every year. And after, after America decided, hey, let's write this democratic constitution for representative democracy, which included an electoral college, what the fuck is that? Many other nations decided, hey, let's try this. 
And you, and like as a designer, like as a designer, the first thing that I do when I'm designing something is 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 look to see who designed it last, and steal all the good stuff, and and try to fix what we now know is the bad stuff. And every nation that came after us did that. And every nation that's written a constitution after us has improved on ours, and we're still trying to patch up the the the, the broken shitty one that got us here. Look, whatever happens on November 3rd, whenever that's decided, we're still going to be living in a country where at least, at least 45% of the people who decided to vote voted for an unrepentant, unrepentant white supremacist and rapist. All the other horrible bullshit that he has done. He is exactly what he tells you he is on the tin. And 45% of Americans decided, thumbs up, that's my guy. And even if he gets voted out, and please, let's vote him out. We still have to deal with the fact that we live in a country where 45% of the people who decided to vote thought that is a worthy alternative. That's the person I'm casting my vote for. Which is another way of saying we live in a deeply racist and sexist country. Like that's the Occam's razor of how Trump gets to be president. And we're proud of it. We're proud of uh, no one on this call, I don't think. But almost, almost a majority of Americans are proud to vote for somebody like that. And I, I think about that a lot. I mean, even when, even before the election, the, the 2016 election, when he won the primary, in my head, I was like, we've already lost. That a man like that can win the primary says something. Because that's the thing about democracy. It shows you who you are. Um, we are basically overtime, but I still feel like we have a little bit of rage to eke out. If folks need to drop, you can drop. But I just want to. There's a place if, I want to. There's a place I want to get to. If we're going to measure based on 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 running out of rage, it's going to be a 24 hour. Twitch. Yeah, I would have done this on Twitch as a 24 hour marathon. Um, honestly, the place I want to get to. So, because we're we're, we're kind of knocking on this door already. I want to talk about communism. I want to talk about socialism. I want to talk about, is this about, I think about what I would like to happen because everything you're saying is true. And I shouldn't even be asking you this question, right? To your point. I'm picturing what does it look like if we say, hey, the people who have been fucked over the most now get to decide what happens next. Like, how do you make that happen? And does it look like something we've seen before, like communism or socialism? Is it something the world has never seen before? Because the world has never really let the most fucked over decide what to do. But let's speculate, shall we? Right? Like what I feel like rage is always best matched with hope. <laughs> like you rage against the shit that's here. And then you point at the reason I'm calling it shit is because it is not this. And you point at the thing that you want. 
Right. And at the same time, while I am, my heart is breaking, I am also trying to picture, again, going back to Wakanda, like that's what I love about Afrofuturism is it claims that Africans have a future. And yeah. what does that look like? Because if I don't know what it looks like, I don't know how to get there. So I just want to riff a little bit on what, what, what do we think happens if we do just let the people who got the most fucked over decide what comes next? I'm a totally wrong person to be asking that of. Well, the, well, well let, me put, let me put it this way, though, right? Because all of us, to some degree, have been fucked over. <laughs> so as an immigrant, right, and as someone who lived in Rizzo's Philadelphia, yeah. right, you know, what are the, when, when, it, when we finally get to you, <laughs> after a whole bunch of other motherfuckers have like put in their, their, cast their ballots because like they've been screwed over way more than you have. What are the things that come to mind of like, okay, here's what I can bring to the table. What I can bring to the, um, you know, honestly, the thing that, 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 that people who, who look like me need to be doing is, is shutting up and listening, shutting up and listening to people who we have been ignoring for a long time. Um, if, if we had a solution for, for a better society, uh, we've done a remarkable job of keeping it from everyone the entire time that we've been in charge. Um, so I think it's fair to say we don't. Uh, what, we, what we did when we were, when we were or are um, in charge of society is we built a society that works really, really well for us. Um, and I think it's time for us to shut up, uh, and let other people take over and, uh, work together and, uh, sit back and to say, how can I help? What do you need from me? I agree. I think that's a great place to leave it. So, oh wait, hold on, hold on. So, Losa, do you want to uh, do you want to say something? Oh, you're on mute. Oh, there you go. Oh yeah, sorry. It was just a quick one. It, well, it probably won't be quick. Um, that's okay. People ignore. I'm unemployed and I'm disabled, and workers. I, I'm in the UK, by the way, for everybody who doesn't know that. Um, for years and years and years all of our benefits and our things have been taken away from us and leaving us in a position where we have no organization to help us. And generally people out there are sort of like, oh, well, you're, they're this phrase scroungers they use about us. And even sort of working class people do this. But during COVID, because a lot of those people are now unemployed, they're on the benefits, they're going, well, hang on, uh, we have universal credit, which is not universal and it's not really a credit. But um, and they say, oh, well, I've got to wait five weeks for my first payment, but my rent's due. And all of a sudden, people are starting to care about people like us who have been saying, well, we've been saying this for years, you know, and we've got. I, I don't know what news you get, but Marcus Rashford. You heard of Mar no. Marcus Rashford? Hmm. Marcus Rashford, Rashford, I think, he's a footballer, which is why I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, basically, we've got, because of the benefit system, we've got kids 
starving in this country, right, and going without food during COVID. And the government are saying, well, we're not going to give out any free food to any kids because your parents need to look after you and they're probably alcoholics and they're probably drug dealers, so they need to just look after you. And he's um, a working class um, black footballer from a very poor family who has now got an OBE because he's pushing the government and saying, no, we need to have um, food for children because children can't starve in this country. And so all around the country, businesses are saying, well, okay, stuff COVID. I know we're losing money already, but this week's half term, so everybody's off. If you are a family and your kids are starving, you don't have enough food, come into our pub, our hotel, our sandwich bar and eat for free. And like all of these places around the country are now saying, yeah, yeah, we've got some sandwiches. In Leeds, we've got the Afghan Women's Association making up food parcels for loads of kids. And they're a charity themselves. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just it's just so much of a disconnect that is taken for people to come to our position of being unemployed to actually realise it, which is a shame. But yeah. Anyway, that wasn't quick, was it? So I'll be quiet now. Oh, no, no, no. It doesn't need to be quick. I mean, that's, it reminds me of, and this is obviously microcosm version, Mm. but we're all working at home now. And I cannot tell you how many people on the spectrum, how many people who have to look after kids, how many people who have health issues have been begging their employers to be able to work from home. And the employer said, oh, sorry, it's too hard. Oh, it's not feasible. Now, all of a sudden, oh, look, everybody can work from home. (laughs) And I know people, I know people who are pissed, (laughs) right? And rightly so that this is now table stakes when they fought tooth and nail for it for so long and were told now clearly as a lie (laughs) or lack of imagination that it couldn't happen. Thank you for bringing that up, Losa. You're absolutely right. Um, well, this has been cathartic, <laughs> I hope. Um, and obviously, we've got a lot of work to do and a lot of rage more to go. I, can, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine what tomorrow's going to be like, much less what next week's going to be like. But You want hope? Yeah, go for it. You want, so here's, 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 here's what's giving me hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, voting centers in Houston are open 24 hours. Uh, the amount of young people who are going through those voting centers at like crazy crack of dawn o'clock, uh, the voting turnout amongst young people in Texas is through the roof, through the roof. Um, and and I, th- I believe that's true across the country as well. Um, I, and, you know, I look at uh, the stuff that young people are doing and what young people care about and what young people are saying. And I just want to make sure that we give them enough runway to get there. Because if we can get those young folks in charge of shit, 
And it is fucking unfair, the raging ball of fire that we are leaving them. Um, but I do believe if there's any sliver of hope in the human condition, it's in what young kids are doing now and what they're saying and what they're fighting for. And the best thing that we can do is to shut the fuck up, get out of their way, clear a path when possible, and let them do the job that we should have done but did not. Uh, apologize and thank them. I, I even see this. I even see this with my own kid, who's eleven, and already he's like. The other day he comes up to me and he's like, "I really like America and I really don't like America," and I'm like, "My work Nailed here is it. done. <laughs> like, you got it." I mean, he's okay. and he's he gets he gets that he's on a fucked planet, <laughs> and he's pissed about it, <laughs> and and I'm just and 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 everyone I've everyone I've met from generation Z, right. Has this very clear eyed a are starting from a very different place in terms of social mores and what is and isn't acceptable and what doesn't, doesn't make sense. Like literally does not comprehend why marriage equality was ever an issue in the first place. Like literally can't get their head around it. Um, and every day children don't murder us is a day. Oh, Oh my God. Like I, the number of people who should be killing us, but, but the, but the other thing that gave me hope to like, to that point is like, there were some kind of like Gen Z panel and they were asking, they were saying like, we, we really get frustrated when people ask us, what are we going to do when we grow up? And then they point to like Malali Safsa and they're like, like, why wouldn't we be doing shit now? I mean, she did her shit when she was 14 or they look at Greta Thunberg. It's like, she ain't even graduated high school yet. She's already getting shit done. So why are we, why are we waiting? Why are we waiting for you to give us permission to do things? like to be at a certain age where we're going to act. And I'm like, that absolutely gives me hope. And to your point, what that requires from us is to get out of the way and make sure they're well-funded. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> Can we do one more question, David? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had one pop in from, from Gam. Hey, um, first of all, I love Marcus, Marcus Rashford. I'm a huge Manchester United fan. So I was following that whole thing on Twitter because um, it went viral and he came all the way here on Twitter on how he was able to get every single, because what he would do was feature them on his Twitter. And as a famous footballer, everyone was so excited um, to get their company featured. So his power was amazing. And he's like 22. He's a young athlete. That's awesome. Um, but with that said, our, our older creatives, because I'm, 25 are older creatives even ready to have that conversation because for me as a designer I grew up having that conversation all the way from design school with my peers but when it came to the educators when it came to the bosses when it came to the CEOs whenever once we left the spaces that we were so comfortable to talk about it they couldn't talk about it or they have a really hard time to do it so you know as I'm navigating as my career goes on and inevitably, you know, a lot of the companies that I'm working, that I'm going to be working at, or a lot of us are going to be working at, they're not comfortable having that conversation, or they don't even give us the opportunity. And so, are they ready to talk about it? Like, are they no. ready? No. no, they're not ready. But here's the thing, who cares if they're ready? 
Um, well, I mean, we, when we started this, we were talking about how discomfort needed to be part of the part of it. Um, and honestly, if somebody here's here here's the thing that we do as 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 human beings, because and and because we're we're we want to look out for each other. Um, when we're talking to somebody and we get the sense that they're now uncomfortable, we back off. We back off because we want to be we want to be kind. Like, oh, I've I've made David uncomfortable. I should I should change the topic. Um, what we need to do is when uh, is understand that uh, I'm just going to use you as an example here, David. Uh-huh. Uh, if I am telling David something that he needs to be hearing and he is getting uncomfortable. I need I need to be thinking it's working. It's working. I'm going to keep going. And to care more about the people who I'm looking out for than I care about David's discomfort. Let them be uncomfortable. Who gives a fuck? Look what they're doing to the rest of society. They can take 10 minutes of, of, of discomfort. Um, and and here's, a, here's a gift that so many uh, companies gave, gave everybody. Um, about, about a month ago, I, in, in August, I believe it was, uh, uh, every every company in America decided that they were going to take a, a strong stance on Black Lives Matter, and uh, they they cared about Black Lives for about two weeks. Um, but the shit that they wrote, the shit that they wrote, it's still there. It's still in print. It's you can still point at it. You can say, "Hey, you said this. You said this in August." What have you done since then? What have you, like, what's step two? Can I help with step two? Can I be in charge of step two? I need to know that we're doing step two. Because step one was easy. You may have even believed step one when you wrote it. And then it got hard. So uh, let's do the hard stuff now. But hold hold their feet to the fire. Make them uncomfortable and don't worry about their, them getting uncomfortable. Yeah, and discomfort is actually a sales technique. Like you'll see these like hardcore salespeople be like trying to close a deal and they'll say, okay, make your offer and then shut up and wait and wait and wait until it gets weird and make them say the next thing. Like that is a legit sales technique. It's also a legit research technique for those of you who are UX researchers, the really good UX researchers, when they get an answer to a question, they don't just jump to the next question and they give it a beat. And nine times out of 10, if you wait just long enough, People talk a little more because they think they need to. And that's when you get the good stuff. So I agree. Scripted shit. Yeah. Discomfort is underrated. I 100% 100 agree. Oh my God. There's just so much. (laughs) I want to thank everybody for being a part of this and for, for sitting with the discomfort with us. Um, I didn't know where this conversation was going to go. And that was on purpose. (laughs) Uh, Mike, I want to thank you for just, bringing it unfiltered like and being like vulnerable and being willing to sit in the discomfort with us. I'm um, uh, please go ahead. Oh, no, no, I was just, I was just going to say, everybody, please vote if you haven't already. And if you know someone who you think you, your presence might even a little bit convince them to vote, give them a call. It's, it's totally okay to lock up your racist uncle in the basement. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm not above that. After all the, the voter suppression that's gone up against us, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with just a little bit of locking up of uncles. That's fine. That's fine. Um, Mike, thank you so much. Next week, uh, you'll see Erica there right now. Um, we're going to be talking to her. 
um, about whatever the fuck happens next. (laughs) That'll be interesting, assuming we are all here. (laughs) Right? I'm so excited. Like, a week from today. No matter... Will we still be here? Yeah. I guess. No matter what happens... Yeah, no matter what happens, Erica, you and I will have a lot to talk about. Like, that is the one guarantee I can make. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Wow. Now, you know what this is like back in uh, in 2016? uh, Mike and I spoke at a conference. Oh, this is totally recapitulating this. We spoke at Beyond Telerand in Berlin. Mm. And on Monday in Germany... uh, or on Tuesday in Germany, Mike spoke. Then overnight, the election returns came in. We got super drunk with a bunch of Germans. And then I had to give a talk the next day after wow. the election returns came in in Berlin. Yeah. So Mike was like, woo, yeah, we're like onward to the future. And the next day I was there like, hello. Did you even a little bit stick to the script? Oh, Oh, yeah, because, you know, (laughs) the talk I was giving was my talk about the bias towards quantitative data that Mm. blinds people to how humans actually make decisions. Yeah, yeah. So I was up there like, so, um, yeah, and I just gave that talk. The talk's still good. I just mm-hmm. gave it recently at a, an internal conference and people were like, oh yeah, this is important. So I'm like, well, we're, we're still doing that. So yeah, it was like, hey, all you, everybody who was paying attention to polls because I know we're like way over time now. Maybe this is a preview of coming attractions. Yeah, keep going. But, <laughs> but um, the thing I despise like the most, I think maybe the most, is treating speculative opinion gathering as some sort of fact, whether people make decisions based on it, like, oh, we did a survey of people's opinions about how they might behave in the future, and we're going to treat that as a fact, but especially uh, reporting where uh, they report on polls, and they say, oh, people would or wouldn't do this. They say that Mm -hmm. they would or wouldn't do this, And, and that changes behavior to say that, like, oh, you know, we talked to all these voters and this they said that this issue is why they will vote a certain way, that you report that and it changes how people vote. And it's like, it's how exit polls change voting, like reporting exit polls in the morning. I think reporting opinion polling should be, like that's a kind of speech I think is tantamount to yelling fire in a crowded room. Let's, and I- should maybe be illegal. But, yeah, it's 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 jury tampering. I mean, except yeah. instead of jury, it's the voting. It's vote. It's voter tampering. I mean, it, 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 it really it's, is. Oh my god, there's so there's all right. Start writing the put the put this in the Google Doc because I want to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make a note. And you're like, let's come back around on this because there's so much why, there. Yeah. yeah, but that that's like one of my uh, just like general well and it's and it's yeah it's so weak too because like I'm finding out and I write about this in the book that that. The day of the week on which you ask that question can change the answer radically. If you ask on a Monday, this is actually did this. They asked on a Monday, do you want, are you going to vote yes on the Scottish referendum? This was Scotland deciding, are they going to leave Britain? Which now I think is guaranteed. But um, so 
before all that. Uh, ask on a Monday, do you want to leave? And people are like, um, yeah, sure. We're, we're, we're totally done leaving. Ask on a Thursday, I don't know. It's this thing called the weekly cycle where you're, you are more risk averse the further you go into the week. And then on Friday, it bounces back up again to being, oh yeah, I'll take risks. By the way, guess which day of the week Brexit was voted on? Thursday. Thursday. Thursdays are bad. And it was a narrow, narrow margin. It is entirely plausible (laughs) that if that vote had been on a Monday or a Friday or a weekend, you wouldn't have had Brexit. That is entirely plausible. Absolutely. Absolutely. But so, so the way people make decisions and the model of, of like policymakers and designers have a terrible model of human behavior and decision-making. And there's this tremendous bias towards anything that appears quantitative Mm. that short circuits thinking. And so that's like one of my like life projects is to chip away at that. So yeah. So I, I developed a talk after I wrote just enough research about that because everybody would come to me and say, Oh, your book's great but my managers still demand quantitative data. And I'm like, well, that is actually, they think they're being biased, but that's, uh, they think they're being analytical and logical, but that's actually a bias towards uh, worse information. That's actually much more misleading. And I need to develop a talk to address that. And so, yeah, so after this, after everybody got misled by the polls and did not pay attention to the narratives and the emotions that are actually what voting behavior is based in that yeah so then i gave my talk in berlin wow Um, yeah if i can jump in real quick because this is a common thing that i hear with designers all the time my manager is demanding x i mean most people treat that like like that's the finish line rather than a hurdle so i mean Turn that around. Say, why Why is this so important to you? Why do you want this? Like, I'm, I'm going to make you work to explain why you believe this is important. Yeah. And I think, uh, I th- yeah. And I think, and I think it all just, uh, I think it all comes back to purpose, right? I mean, I think they're absolutely right. Like, who are you here to serve? Are you here to serve the share? And Erica, I've stolen your user-centered design versus shareholder-centered design. And like, I'm spreading it far and wide. But who are you actually here to serve, right? Do you serve at the pleasure of the CEO of the bottom line of whatever, or do you serve at the pleasure of society? Like you live in a society and first and foremost, <laughs> right? You, you are beholden to that. Like, I'm just going to tell you the answer. <laughs> right? yeah. You are beholden to that. And then somewhere down the line. And to me, then the profitability of the company or whatever, those are simply design constraints. Those are simply like things that, yeah, 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 yeah. But how am I, how is the serving society? And Mike, you brought the support. If the very business model requires destroying society, okay, then the problem is with the business model. Yeah. It's not with society. You are not required to uphold an unethical business model. In fact, you're required to stomp it. Yeah. The the we actually had someone from this. The um the the never again pledge, which was signed by a whole bunch of data scientists when they tried to use their work to fuck over immigrants includes in the list of things we will never do or the things that we will do. One of those things is if, if all else fails, it is our duty to destroy data sets that are going to hurt people. Yeah. Like that's the, that that's where we're at. So if you're looking for, you know, hobbies, there it is. Um, 
Thank you all so much. Um, I feel like we lived up to the expectation of, of rage. Um, but I feel like we peppered in a little hope. Um, we didn't even talk about cassettes. Oh, wait, you got, well, yeah, you got to show me this. We're, you can't see it on the, on the, uh, the podcast. But for those of you on the podcast, Mike is holding up cassette audio versions of Ruined by Design. And the, the, the actual individual cassettes, if you line them all up, have Mark Zuckerberg's little weaselly face on them. This is how bored I've gotten from <laughs> lockdown. Mike, you know cassettes are destroying the record industry. I don't know how you can do that with a clear conscience. And it felt so good to make these. <laughs> you know, I was, I was. You know, you know who who got hurt by me making these? Myself. <laughs> oh, sorry. One last thing that I wanted to bring up when you when you were talking before about the record industry thing. So it reminded me of how when um, the whole issue of, of video piracy came up and it's like, piracy is not a victimless crime, blah, blah, blah. And they would have actually um, these, these little trailers before, back when we went to movie theaters, before the movie. And it would be like, um, yeah. uh, uh, like, the, like Bob the stunt coordinator or right. something. And it's like, my family requires that you go to the movies and blah, blah, blah. And then at the end, it would be like, you know, piracy is not a victimless crime. And like, don't steal movies. And then, like, I could feel everyone in the audience simultaneously thinking, "Wait, we can steal movies now?" <laughs> you know this this cell phone. <laughs> the, the, this the, our our most important workers are barely hanging on by a thread. Is the most ridiculous self own of any industry. It's like. Why are you not paying these people enough? Like I'm, I'm, you know, I see Jeffrey Katzenberger out there, and he doesn't look like he's he's hurting. He's doing fine. Oh God, he just did that quibby thing, right? Not anymore. Imagine, imagine having enough money for that. Well, that's the thing. Once you are rich, you can fail as much as you want. Like that's another one of the inequities. Okay. All right. I, I need to go. <laughs> Thank you all so much. Uh, this has been the Cognitive Bias Podcast with David Dolan Thomas. We will see you next time. 